Well, good evening, or afternoon, good afternoon. Caught myself, doesn't count. Um, Those who know me well know I have a tradition of not eating a whole lot at the potluck when I know I'm about to preach. And for whatever reason, I broke that tradition today, and now I remember why I started that in the first place. Uh, But the food was great, we're glad we were able to share that meal together. It was shaping up to be a pretty standard Sunday at the McDonald's in Scottsdale, Indiana, other than the difference that it was Father's Day that day. This is back in 2017. And early in the morning at the McDonald's, somebody going through the drive through line said, you know what, I'd like to pay for the meal behind me as well. Sometimes that's called paying it forward. Maybe you've heard of that. And sometimes when you go through the drive through and you tell the lady at the window, I want to pay for them too, she'll, she'll let you do that. And the McDonald's employees didn't think anything of it. Pretty standard, that happens from time to time. The difference this time was, though, the person it was paid forward to, they also paid it forward to the person behind them. And then the next person paid it forward to the person behind them. And then the next person paid it forward to the person behind them. And by the end of the day, there was 167 meals in that McDonald's drive through that was not paid for by the person who ordered it, by the, by the person who went before them. And it just shows us that when that kind of kindness and that kind of gift is given, and to somebody with an open and a soft heart, it reciprocates itself, and whoever receives that gift tries to give a gift to other people. And this might seem like it's not really connected to what we're talking about, but when we look at God's grace and God's mercy, he gave us for free something way more valuable than a McDonald's meal. And we ought to pay it forward, so to speak, in how we live our lives and how we conduct ourselves. But this afternoon, we're going to look at grace in the Bible. We're going to look at why we need grace. We're going to look at defining some terms. We're going to trace grace throughout the trajectory of the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And then we're going to bring it home with some points of application about how grace isn't just some kind of thing we can sing about and think about, but it really makes a difference in our lives. At least it should. So in the first place, let's, uh, as we think about grace and mercy, these, off, these words often are seen together, and that's why I kind of paired them together throughout this lesson, though they're not the same, and we'll talk about that. But why do we need grace? And there's a couple of different reasons, biblically, you could answer this question. This isn't a complete answer to this question, but this is a part of it. In the first place, we need to remember that sin separates men from God. When you think about Isaiah 59, 1 through 2, that oft-quoted passage, it really is heartbreaking. Because it's not just God telling people that because of their sin, they're no longer in fellowship with Him. It's not God just telling people that He can't hear their prayers because of their sin, or He won't save them because of their sin. It's God telling Israel that their sin had separated them, the covenant people of God, from their creator. And that's how serious sin is in the eyes of God. That's the sin problem. It separates us from God. We cannot be in fellowship with God, who is all holy, all light, 1 John 1, 5, while sin resides on us. And we know that this sin problem, Romans 3.10, is uh, ubiquitous, if you will. It's everywhere. All of those who meet the condition of... um, accountability fall under this sin problem, okay? So that's the issue. We read that the law was introduced because of sin, Galatians 3.19. So remember, God made the promise to Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. 
He didn't give the law of Moses to start. He made the promise to start. That's Paul's whole point in that part of Galatians 3. But then the nation of Israel could not stop sinning. God needed to do something about it. So thus came the law. The law was there to help curb sin. But the problem is, because of human weakness, the law could justify no one. This law that came in here to curb sin couldn't actually make anybody righteous in the sight of God because nobody could keep it perfectly. That's what we read about in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul says, By works of the law, no man can be justified in the sight of God. Thus you have a sin problem. The law, not because of its own weakness, but because of the weakness of men, cannot save us. So therefore, a grace-faith system was introduced by God so that anybody who comes to God on his terms can be saved, not by keeping the law, but by grace through faith. And I hope you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3, 21 through 30. And this is the crux, really, of Paul's argument in Romans 30, that look, the Jews and the Gentiles, they're both under sin. If they're going to be forgiven of their sin, it cannot be by keeping the law. There must be another means. And of course, God provided another means through his son, Jesus. And look at what it says there. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. So you see in this system in Jesus Christ, the system by grace through faith, sins are forgiven not only now by those who approach Jesus on his terms, but even the sins committed under the old system of the law. And what Paul is doing here is showing the superiority of faith, the superiority of grace, as opposed to keeping of the law of Moses. But this is really just a tip of the iceberg, and grace is an interesting study that I think anytime we should look at it, we, we should. But we're going to look at grace now, going from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, and I'm getting ahead of myself. We're actually going to define some terms first. So really, what is grace? It's one of those words, and I don't mean this in a flippant way, but sometimes you might refer to them as almost like a church word. You know, it's a word you hear in the worship assembly. You might read it in your Bible, but you don't necessarily use it when you're talking to other people. So we're going to talk about grace and mercy. Grace really is, it's often defined as unmerited favor, but really more generally, it's this idea of goodwill. It's this idea of kindness towards somebody. It's this idea of free benevolence, doing something kind for somebody else, not because they earned it or deserved it or because they can repay you, but because you're giving them a generous gift. And some people say that's fine, but really where do you see this in the Bible? And in Romans 3.24, which we just read, if you were listening and following along, you may have caught that. Some people have this idea that even grace is earned, but notice what it says there in Romans 3.24. We were justified by his grace, depending on your translation, it either says as a gift or freely. You see grace is given freely, and we're going to talk more about that later. Some people have defined it, and this is less scholarly, but it really gets to the heart of this idea of grace in the New Testament. God's riches at Christ's expense. And that, of course, is an acronym where each letter makes the word. We can have the riches of God, and we'll look at that later in Ephesians 2, the salvation, the mercy, the love, everything that comes from God, all these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places given to us by grace, and it's free for us, but Christ 
of course, had to die to make it possible. That's grace, this graceful initiative of God to give us something we don't deserve so that we could spend eternity with him. Also, looking at mercy, mercy is pity, compassion. One scholar defined it as the feeling of one moved by the sight of another's suffering. And if you think back, the parable of the unmerciful servant, as we often call it, remember in Matthew 18, 27, where the man had this great debt that he could never pay off. And he goes to his master and he begs, please, please, please forgive me. You know there's no way I can pay this. Please just let me off. And the master says, or it's recorded there of the master, as Jesus is giving the parable, that the master had pity on him. And that's why he forgave him. Not because he could ever pay it back. Not because he could somehow work this debt off. It was because of pity. And then in Matthew 18.33, in that same parable, when the master is describing that occasion again and says, remember how I forgave you? I had mercy on you, the master says. Shouldn't I not have had mercy also? You shouldn't have had mercy also on your fellow servant. So you see this idea of pity and mercy are really closely linked. It's God looking down at our estate without his help by our own direction when we're uh, sinful and only follow the ways of the world and wanting to do something about it. And of course, because of his grace and his mercy, he has provided us his son. And some people view grace and mercy as two sides of the same coin, and this by and large is true in reference to salvation. Sometimes mercy is used not having to do with the salvation of the soul, but it's two sides of the same coin. Getting what we do not deserve, that's grace, this gift, this generous gift, this free benevolence, and not getting what we do deserve, this idea of mercy or pity or, uh, as we might say it idiomatically, uh, not giving somebody the full brunt of our wrath or taking it easy on somebody. Uh, so grace and mercy. But let's look at how we see it used throughout the Bible. Turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 in the first place to get this reference of grace or favor, depending on your translation, really early on in, in uh, the Bible's record. Genesis 6, and start in verse number 1. Genesis 6, 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Notice this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on this earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, the birds of heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. What is God saying? I'm going to blot out every single living creature. Notice verse 8, though, but, but Noah found favor, or grace, depending on your translation, in the eyes of the Lord. When we read on, we read that that wasn't for no reason. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, verse 9, Noah walked with God. But notice that God's first intention is to kill every living creature on the face of the earth with a flood. But Noah found grace, or Noah found favor, because he walked with God. So, of course, him and his household were spared. But also, if you think about it, by... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, 
Don't you just love when that happens? Um, we were spared as well. If Noah wasn't spared, we wouldn't be here. That's really what I'm trying to get to. All of us trace ourselves back to those eight people in that ark that were saved because of the grace of God. Even though he could have ended everything, he spared Noah. Likewise, look at Exodus 34, 6 in your Bibles, if you would turn over there. Exodus chapter 34 and verse number 6. And while we're turning there, remember a little bit of context. Remember Exodus 32, that's the whole golden calf incident. Remember Moses goes up to get the law from God, and the, and the Israelites say, this Moses guy, are we ever going to see him again? This God Moses speaks about, is he really going to help us? What if we made a God for ourselves? So Aaron gathers up all their gold, puts it in the fire, and according to Aaron, out jumped a calf. Of course, he had something to do with making it. And they worship and bow down to this calf instead. And if you remember, Moses comes down and he sees what's going on. He's so mad, he breaks the Ten Commandments. He breaks the tablets that God himself wrote the law on. That's how upset he is. And he goes up to God and God says, you know what? I really ought to just blot these people out. I should just remove them from the face of the earth because of their sin. And remember, Moses intercedes for the people. And he says, no, what will the Egyptians say if you saved us just to kill us in the wilderness? And he saves them. And then Moses begs to see God's glory. And notice how God describes himself to Moses. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, God, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So why wasn't Israel completely blotted out in the wilderness? Because the Lord is a God who is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Because of what the Israelites did, they deserved to die right there on the base of Mount Sinai. But God preserved them because of who God is, not because of their own righteousness. Notice that Israel was given the promised land not because they deserved it, but because not only of the grace of God, but because of the wickedness of those who were its tenants before them. But look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6. And this is something that in modern day gets a lot of um, flack, if you will. A lot of people raise the objection. Wasn't God kind of um, prejudiced that he would choose the Israelites to inhabit this land and kind of kill all of these other ethnic groups in their place? And it's not that God hated the Canaanites. It's not that he had, because of their blood or because of their ethnicity that God wanted them to be gone. They were doing extremely sinful things in that land. They were committing all kinds of different uh, grotesque acts. They were sacrificing their children to their false gods. They were committing incest and all other kinds of things that we just think are unspeakable. And God is reminding Israel, hey, don't get, don't, uh, you know, if you're, a lot of times people tell me, don't get the big head. That's almost what God is telling Israel. Don't, get, don't think you're special just because you're coming into this land, right? Look at what he says in Deuteronomy 9.6. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. And he, he starts to remind them of all the things they did where they wouldn't listen to God, where they refused to follow him. And it's like, look, guys, 
You're not here because you deserve to be here. You're here because I made a promise to Abraham. I faithfully love you. I'm gracious enough to give you this land. And because the people who live there now are committing great abominations to me. That's why they had the land. It wasn't because they deserved it. It was a free benevolence, if you will. It was a gift to them. Likewise, God's people were sustained throughout the Old Testament by God's grace and mercy. And we see these two things again and again together. Look at Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. And look at how the psalmist describes the people of God and their relationship with God. Look at what he says there. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. He says, The Lord is merciful and gracious. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Just like Exodus. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And when I preached this not too long ago, I said that this really is the textbook definition for mercy. Look at that, verse 10 again. He does not deal with us according to our sins. The psalmist is saying, because of our sin, we deserve a certain something from God. And it's not good. It's eternal damnation. And he says, but God doesn't treat us like that. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. Why not? Verse 8, because the Lord is merciful and gracious. Sometimes in our culture, we always cry out, and it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's needed. We cry out for fairness. We cry out for justice. We cry out for these things that sometimes in our world really are lacking. But when you're in the presence of God, and it's your life that's on display, you're not crying out for justice or fairness. You're crying out, Lord, don't give me what I deserve, please. And please, Lord, please give me what I, what I don't deserve, what I could never earn. And of course, that is fellowship with him and salvation from the very sin that stains our soul. So God's people are sustained, even in the Old Testament, by grace and by mercy. And sometimes there's this dichotomy, right? The God of the Old Testament is just wrathful and vengeful. And the God of the New Testament, that's the God of mercy and of grace and of love. And that simply just isn't true. It's the same God through and through, from Genesis to Revelation. And you see the consistency of his character, God's people have always been sustained by grace and mercy. A remnant preserved, for the sake of time, we won't turn here, but in Jeremiah 31, 2, speaking to the remnant of God's people, who remember Israel was indulging themselves in idolatry and other sinful practices, and they're kicked out of the land. But God says, just like I had mercy on my children in Egypt, I will have mercy on you in the desert. Why was the remnant able to return to Israel? Is it because they deserved it? No, they deserve the opposite. It's because the Lord is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. I do want to turn here. A Messiah is promised in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Turn there with me if you can. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse number 10. And Zechariah is one of those books that maybe we don't spend enough time in as we need to, but really is chock full of these allusions to who the Messiah will be, what he'll be like, what he'll deliver to God's people. And notice here, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. This is on the heels, or in the context of this discussion of the one who is pierced, which we know is a reference to Jesus. And in verse 10, notice what God promises. I will pour out on the house of David... And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace 
and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. So we have this prophecy looking forward to the Messiah. When the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem are blessed, and there is this spirit of grace that comes onto these inhabitants. And of course, we know that ultimately that comes through Jesus. And that leads us to the New Testament. And if you turn over to the Gospel of John, John 1, and that's exactly how Jesus comes on the scene. That's what he's known for. That's what he brings to the people. Look at John 1, verses 14 and 17, and we see that grace in its fullest sense is manifested in Jesus Christ. Look at John 1, 1 and verse 14. It says, And the Word, and this is the same Word, John 1, 1 through 3, that is with God and is God and has created all things, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, notice this, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ was full of grace. He was a walking representation of the grace of God. Here as the gift that would bring salvation for all of mankind. And notice again verse 17 how this language is uh, emphasized again. For the law was given through Moses... Again, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God is aware of the sin problem. He's got to do something about it. He knows our righteousness just won't cut it. What's he going to do? He's going to send his only begotten son. And he's going to come and he's going to be full of grace. And he's going to save his people from their sins. And that is exactly what he did. Notice with me also how the gospel is described. The gospel is not just... Sometimes we say, you know, what is the gospel? Well, it's the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, sure, that's a big part of it, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. But it really encompasses a big part of the doctrine that we see in the New Testament. And notice how it's interesting how Paul describes the gospel in Acts 20. And he's there in front of these Ephesian elders. And notice how he describes what he preached to them. Acts 20, verse 24. He says, I do not account my life of any value. And I love this verse. This is a great verse. If you highlight or underline, this is one to have in mind. Notice Paul's outlook. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Notice this, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So what is the gospel? We all know, well, the gospel is the good news, right? But part of that message, look here, is the grace of God. This is the message by which we know about the grace of God. God's kindness upon us that even though he sees us in our sinful state, he's willing to be the initiator of our salvation. That is, and we'll talk about this later, but nobody climbed the ladder into heaven and forced God to send Jesus down to us. Why did God do that? Because he's merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Nobody could have made him do that. Nobody forced his hand. Nobody caught him in a corner and said, God, you have to do this for us. He did it because he wanted to. He did it because he wanted to, not because anybody compelled him. And look there at verse 32, Acts 10, verse 32. He says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, 
which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So again, the word of God, the gospel, is the word of his grace. What is this imparting to us? What is this telling us about? What are we learning from God's word and from the gospel? A big part of it is the grace of God, what God is giving to us that we don't deserve. This is where it gets a lot more serious. I hope you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And if you feel a little tired, I understand. You can perk up for this. I promise we're almost through. Ephesians chapter 2. And notice, and this is really where grace is on display. Because when grace is juxtaposed to what sin looks like, grace really shines even all that brighter. And this talk about grace and how great it is, that's fantastic for a bunch of people who are trying to do their best to serve the Lord. But sometimes we forget about our utterly hopeless situation outside of Jesus Christ and how there's nothing from our own strength pulling on our own bootstraps we could have done to get to heaven and to get into fellowship with God without his graceful initiative. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Obviously, not physical, but spiritual. Following the course of the world, so you're following along with the pattern of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, a reference to Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. All of us, that's how we used to live our lives, in the passions of the flesh. That's what we lived for, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And this doesn't mean we're born sinful. We were so good at sinning, it was as if it was our second nature. That's our past life outside of Jesus Christ. But notice verse 4. Notice how it starts. But God, being rich in mercy, and think about that word rich, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Verse 4 really is where you see this, this contrast and this transition. Before God shows up on the scene in verse 4, it's completely dismal. It's hopeless. There is no hope. There's nothing we can do. We're following uh, Satan. We're following the course of this world. And that's something we chose to do, but that was our state. But God, because look at this richness. Verse 4, he's rich in mercy. Verse 4, he's rich in grace. Why did God do what he do? What he did, sorry. Why did he send Jesus Christ, even while we were sinners, to save us? Because he's rich in mercy and because he's rich in grace. And that's why we can't boast, Paul says in Ephesians 2.9. There's nothing for us to boast about. If we were to pull up our resume, a big part of that resume would be us following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air. There's nothing for us to brag about. God did that by his own graciousness, because he wanted us to be saved. Notice also that we are saved by mercy and justified by grace. 
And this isn't always a consistent distinction in the New Testament, but it's the way it's worded in Titus 3, 1 through 7. And then we'll get to some application quickly. Titus 3, we can really start in verse 4. Titus 3, I hope you'll turn there in your Bibles. Titus 3 and verse 4. And I want us to think about the difference between salvation and justification as it relates to mercy and grace. But when the goodness, Titus 3, 4, in loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Notice how are we saved? Not by our own works done in righteousness. We cannot meritoriously work to be saved. He's, he saved us by his own mercy. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, notice this, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I think it's interesting that Paul would say we're saved by mercy and justified by grace. And it's not a contradiction with Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, we're saved by grace. But think about salvation and mercy. Salvation really only makes sense in the context of what we're being saved from. If you were walking down the street and somebody ran up to you and said, look, I just saved you, you would say, save me from what? Without any reference to any potential danger, salvation really is almost a moot point. But when you realize what you deserve, left to your own devices and left to your own sinful ways, then salvation makes sense. And it's by mercy because we're not getting what we do deserve. Sin earns hell. That's not what we receive. Why? Because God is merciful. And it's more than just you're not getting what you uh, do deserve. You're also getting something you don't deserve. That is to be justified. So it's not just that you get to avoid hell. It's that you're made righteous in the sight of God. How? By grace. It's not something we earn. It's something given to us by God as a gift. But we need to know a couple of things about it. And this is where the rubber meets the road, if you will. Some take-home points about grace as we close this afternoon. The first one I want us to uh, just keep in mind, and this should change the way we look at ourselves and those around us. Without grace, we would get what we deserve. That's something we need to remember because it changes everything. Think about Romans 6.23. It's an oft-quoted verse, but think about what it's really saying. The wages of sin is death, but, what is it? But, the gift of God through Jesus Christ is eternal life. This idea of a gift, this idea of graciousness, this idea of benevolence, how did that come about? How did we not get what we earned, working our lives in the vineyard of sin? How did we not get that? By the grace of God, through Jesus Christ. That's why grace is so important. Without it, we get what we deserve. In the next place, notice that grace is unmerited but not unconditional. And that's something that we need to keep in mind and be reminded of day in and day out with the religious world the way it is. So often when grace is mentioned, it's mentioned as something that just overtakes you and there's nothing you can do about it and you're going to be saved whether you like it or not. But that's not how the Bible portrays grace. Notice a couple of verses. In the first place, Romans chapter 5 and verse 17, Romans 5, 17, and it's, it's subtle, but notice what is said there. And this is contrasting what Paul calls uh, what, uh, what Adam did and the free gift that Jesus brought of salvation. That's how Paul describes it. But look at verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive 
the abundance of grace, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. And that might not seem like it's making this point. Excuse me, but notice that grace is something to be received. And that verb there is an active verb. This isn't a passive thing. It's not just like I'm just laying there and God forces grace upon me. I have to receive it. Notice also 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, that it says there, working together with him, Paul says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The implication being is that you could receive the grace of God in vain. You could know about God's gracious gift of salvation to mankind through his son, approach him on his terms, and do it all through vain. Why? Because it's conditional. It's possible to receive the grace of God in vain if we receive it and then walk away from it and stop walking in the light as he is in the light. And of course, Galatians 5 verse 4, those who seek to be justified by the law are severed from Christ. You who would like to be justified by the law, Paul says, you've fallen from grace. So it does have conditions. It does have to be actively received. God still... Jesus is still the author of salvation for all those who obey him. But the fact that salvation is offered at all is where we see God's grace on display. We still have to have faith. We still have to obey. And we still have to receive that grace. The next place we need to take home that salvation is whosoever will by grace. Another way of saying that is why is it that God is willing to save anybody and everybody who comes to him on his terms? No matter what they look like, no matter how much money they make, no matter their ethnic background, no matter of any of those things, why is that? Because God saves by grace through faith. Not by some meritorious system, not by some system of partiality, not by some system of favoritism, but by grace through faith. Acts 15, you have this gathering at Jerusalem. What are we going to do about the Gentiles converting to Christianity? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to do this? Do they have to do that? And notice what Peter says in verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? That's how he describes circumcision for Gentiles. That neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. None of us could bear the law. Why are we trying to make the Gentiles follow it? Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. You see, what's the common denominator between the Gentile and the Jewish Christian? They're both saved by grace. As one preacher put it, they're not saved by their face or their place or their race. They're saved by God's grace. So when we talk about the salvation, uh, the gospel being for all, part of that is because it's given by God's grace. It doesn't depend on where you're from or your background or how well you can keep the law. It's about coming to him uh, by faith because of his grace. Also, we need to keep in mind that no amount of grace is an excuse to sin. In Romans 5.19, Paul develops this point that as sin was multiplied, so was grace. And he kind of anticipates what somebody might say in objection. And he says, then are we to sin that grace may abound? Romans 6.1, God forbid. Absolutely not. And his whole point is, look, as Christians, we are dead to sin. That's crazy. That's like asking if a dead person should walk around. They can't do it. And it's not that God literally is forcing us from going back to the ways of the world, but it shouldn't even be mentioned about us that we've gone back to the ways of sin. No amount of grace will ever be an excuse to sin. And lastly, and I know time is swiftly passing us by, a couple of things 
uh, this last take-home point, and it's a big one. Grace and mercy, mercy, pardon me, should change our lives. You cannot really, really be exposed to the grace and the mercy of God and walk away the same person. That should not be said of us. It changes everything. Notice in the first place that because we have, uh, those of us who are Christians, have accepted the grace and the mercy of God, we should shun worldliness and live godly lives. Look at what Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 tells us. And when you think about grace and the way it's often used, sometimes it's used as an excuse to do whatever you want. Sometimes you can say, well, I know that this isn't right, but I also know that God is gracious and maybe he'll understand. But notice how grace is described in Titus 2, 11. Some of us wouldn't picture grace as a schoolmaster, as a teacher, but that's what Paul says grace is. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when you have a teacher, uh, sometimes there's some discipline involved. Sometimes there's some making sure that you're on the right page and you're doing what you're supposed to do. And look how grace is described in Titus 2, verse 11 through 14. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Notice the grace of God trains us. It teaches us, it disciplines us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We cannot take hold of the grace of God and then go about living our lives however we want to. Grace teaches us some things. It makes us stop and think, wait a second. God has gone through great lengths to allow me to be saved, to allow me to not have to face the condemnation I deserve. How am I going to react to that? By living the same way I did before I came into contact with his grace? Absolutely not. It changes everything. It ought to change the way we live. Likewise, we should be workers for God. We already read it, but remember in Ephesians 2, 10, 8 through 10, you're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. Verse 10 says that you are created in God, a workmanship. You're his workmanship to be workers for him, essentially. So notice that grace isn't there just to get a free pass and nothing's, you know, it's just the same as it was. No, now we shun worldliness, we live godly lives, and by grace we're workers for God. Likewise, because we've come into contact with God's grace and mercy, we should ourselves be merciful and gracious. Remember again the parable of the unforgiving servant. How he's forgiven this amazing debt, then he goes and he shakes down his fellow servant for the spare change that he owes him. And the master comes to him and reminds him in verses 32 through 33, remember what I did to you? What I did for you? How I was merciful and compassionate. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow servant. You see, the master in this parable, which pretty clearly is a representation of God and us and salvation, the master in this parable says, because I showed you mercy, I expect you to show mercy to others. Grace and mercy impacts the way we treat other people. And Jesus is saying through this parable, I can tell you've encountered the grace and the mercy of God, and you've taken advantage of it, if you will. You've brought it into your life and you've accepted it and you've obeyed him by how you treat other people. And lastly, we are to grow. Because of God's grace and mercy, 
we should grow. We're told in 2 Peter 3.18 to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace that Jesus brought. The gift of salvation to be accepted by whoever will and is willing to do it by faith. That ought to make us to grow more into his image. To grow more like him. To grow more towards the maturity that God would have us to have. We should thank God for his amazing grace. No one climbed a ladder to heaven and forced God to open up the floodgates of salvation for us. He did that out of love as a gift to be received by obedient faith. And no amount of our own righteousness can ever earn what could only be purchased by the blood of God's only begotten Son. If we've already accepted God's gift of salvation, we should be living transformed lives each day. Lives mindful of our new life given by God, zealous for good works. We should be inviting others into the kingdom because of how great it is. We should be forgiving others when they sin against us and demonstrating to everybody that God can save anybody who comes to him on his terms. Why? All of that because of grace. And if you haven't accepted God's gift of salvation, God's gift of justification, today is the day. And the Bible tells us how we can receive God's grace. And it's something infinitely more valuable than a free meal at McDonald's. It's something that will make your day way more than anything like that ever could. And though that's a good example of grace and that's a good example of kindness, it pales in comparison to the grace and the gift given to us through Jesus Christ. And it's something we should pay for, but it's also something we need to make sure we accept. We can take hold of God's gracious gift today by trusting him with our entire being, by repenting of our sins and realizing, I want to live in step with God's grace, by confessing that Jesus is who he said he is, full of grace and truth, our Lord and the Son of God, and being immersed in his name in the watery grave of baptism. And there we come in contact with God's saving grace. We come in contact with Jesus' redeeming blood, and we rise to walk in a new life that we couldn't have ever earned ourselves but have been able to take hold of by God's grace in our faith. God's grace changes everything. Don't reject it in your life, but let it transform you. If you want to come forward today to take hold of God's grace, to repent of a sin, to come to the gracious God and confess before your brethren and ask for their prayers, today is the day to do it. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know that God is full of grace, full of mercy, and he longs for each of us to be with him for eternity, but he won't force us. We have to make that decision for ourselves. Let's make that decision today and every day. If you need to come forward, please do so.